All right. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the second episode of our lovely little podcast here, The Overanalysts. I am Brady, the overanalyst on Twitch, uh, known mainly for just rambling in the back of other people's streams, providing context and filling dead air. And I'm joined by my good friend, Seth the Overwitch. Hello. And today we're tackling, uh, as the year comes to a close, I think one of the more significant trends in, I don't even want to say AAA gaming, but kind of like crossover gaming. Like it started with a smaller market. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like this um, this part of the gaming community is a little bit more niche, a little mm -hmm. bit more hardcore. Definitely. Um, we're talking about Souls-likes and like the kind of Dark Souls phenomenon more broadly, kind of looking back on the previous decade. Because I think there's been a lot of interesting trends and developments in the gaming space over the past 10 years. But I wanted to focus on one that didn't have to do with really shitty marketing practices for once. <laughs> like, I mean, think about it. What else? What were the other big trends? Like microtransactions, loot boxes? Yeah, exactly. I think that the only bad thing that came out of the Souls-likes, you know, becoming a big genre was the fact that it brought up some elitism in the gaming yes. community. But that is, I mean, you can just mute people. Absolutely. And uh, and we, we broadcast on Twitch. We do. <laughs> yeah, we do. So really, I want to spend a little bit of time like breaking down specifically the very broad strokes history of from software and the like Soulsborne franchise as it's come to be known. Then just kind of dig deep into uh, our experiences with not just the, the mainline series, but the countless action RPGs they've inspired. Uh, because uh, just for context for our listeners, I've played, frankly, an embarrassing number of Souls-likes over the years after getting my hands on Dark Souls 1 and hating it at release. And, Seth, you recently got into the this kind of oeuvre, right? Yeah, exactly. So, basically, I went in because a friend of mine uh, uh, strongly suggested that I should. <laughs> um, so, he asked me very politely to start playing uh, Dark Souls 3, and that was my first Souls-like ever. Um, actually, no, that's a lie. My first Souls-like ever would be Hollow Knight, but mm -hmm. at that point, I didn't really realize that it was a Souls-like. So, l let's say a pur purposely played Souls-like was uh, Dark Souls 3 for me. That was maybe like four months ago, four to five months ago, I'd say. Right, yeah, so about half a year. And for yeah. me, that's Oh god, probably going on 9 or 10 years. Oh god, I'm old. Um, just to give a little bit of background, and again, if you uh, like, again, are a fan of Matt Kowalewski's Wahopin series on YouTube, uh, he did a great documentary on, on Demon Souls that kind of breaks down some of this background with a little bit more context. But to give you the broad strokes, Dark Souls, if you can believe it, the Souls likes as a phenomenon are only around 10 years old, 10 years and change. Doesn't it feel like they've been around longer than that? I feel like, yeah, it's it's been, like, I don't know, that they've always been with us. Yeah, yeah, like um, the, the night terrors that are with us in our sleep <laughs> every day. Yeah. Um, but the first title that kind of inspired this grander movement was released by From Software in mid-2009. That was the original release of Demon's Souls on the PS3. If, if you don't remember Demon's Souls prior to hearing about the remake coming out, friends, you're not alone. 
because uh, compared to Dark Souls, Demons is really, really obscure, and especially at the time of release. Seth, do you remember hearing anything about the game at all, like, around no. 09, 2010? No, like, uh, for me, the first Souls, like, that I was aware was Demon Soul. Um, uh, sorry, was uh, Dark Souls. Yeah. Yeah, that's true for a lot of people. And the reason for this is because, to the best of my knowledge, uh, From Software had been sitting on this, like, slowly, slowly uh, um, deteriorating project for years that was... The gist of it was they were contracted to develop a a Japanese answer or analog to Elder Scrolls Oblivion, like a big open-world Western fantasy RPG. It just never got off the ground. It never could really... They never, never were able to take it anywhere. And this... Uh, I believe he was a former accountant who had gone into game design. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, Mr. Miyazaki... Uh, managed to acquire the, the directorship of this project that was just a nothing project. Everybody was expecting it to be cancelled any day, right? He decided that, well, nobody's watching this project all that closely, and it seems like they'll sign off on anything from a creative uh, direction perspective because they just expect to can it any day. So I'm just going to make the game I've always wanted to. I'm going to make, like, the best RPG, the, the best game I can. Uh, have you read that actually his greatest inspiration for the Soul series was Legend of Zelda? Mm-hmm. Sure have. Uh, Legend of Zelda and a lot of, like, classic uh, early and mid-90s, like, dungeon crawler games. Like, you yeah. know, very, very low story. Think, like, wizardry or something like that. And... He was able to take this project and run with it, and he created an insanely, for the time, difficult game with a high learning curve and a deep lore, complex mechanics that, um, looking back on it, Sony executives who had, like, been called in to playtest it because the, the project was slated to be a Sony exclusive absolutely hated it. One of Sony's leading executives looking back on it said something to the effect of, I sat there and played it for like two hours and I just kept dying over and over again. I couldn't get past the first section and I, I was so confused. <laughs> like, they thought it was terrible. Yeah, that was my first experience with uh, Dark Souls as well. Like, I kept dying over and over again. I hated it, but I wanted to keep playing. I wanted to get good. Yeah, no, exactly. So the, the game wasn't received well internally. It was the result of, like, a transformed project that had been left on the back burner for years. Um, so it didn't receive much marketing or fanfare when it released as a PS3 exclusive in 2009, despite receiving some pretty positive critical uh, reviews, it, even though it became more notorious for its difficulty than anything else. We'll talk about that in a minute. And yeah. I want to say Dark Souls came out the next year, I think, right? Uh, two years, actually. Two years. Okay, let me see. Two years, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, late uh, 2011. Yeah, but but look at their their uh, record and, like, popping out the Dark Souls games. It's 2011, 2014, mm -hmm. 2016. Like, what the hell? With Bloodborne in 2015, as well as the complete repackaged edition of Dark Souls 2, um, Sekiro in 2019... And uh, Demon Souls again uh, just a couple months ago. So they have a really impressive track record, and that allows me to segue perfectly into the last little bit of context I want to give for like Souls likes as a phenomenon. Who on earth are from software, right? Like, what is this company? What do they do? They have a weird name. Yes. <laughs> Western <laughs> audiences are probably beyond Dark Souls most familiar with their work through, as you mentioned just before we started, Seth. 
this um, mech shooter series called Armored Core, which, like, incorporated, I think, a lot of fun uh, arena combat and things like that. Games like that were pretty popular um, during the PlayStation and PlayStation 2 eras, I want to say. Like, just simple yeah. arena shooters. Absolutely, and also especially in Japan, because they really like their mecha games, so it was a big hit there. Yeah, and to to my recollection, the Armored Core games that were translated for the West were actually received very well over here. Apparently they're very, yeah. very good. H have you played any of them? No, uh, I was never into mecha stuff, so not, mm -hmm. my, not my jam. Um, but there's a million Armored Core games, and aside from that, they are responsible for two pretty significant franchises that merit uh, mention here. The first, and indeed the first uh, intellectual property that the studio developed, was a traditional like dungeon-crawling first-person RPG series called Kingsfield, which saw the release of, I want to say, four installments from very, very late 1994 to uh, mid-2001. These games were adventure games done in the old style, where yes, it was first person with clunky-ass combat and spellcasting that felt awful and all of this, but there was this rich lore surrounding the players, and also a million and one ways to screw oneself over by doing things that you didn't know you weren't supposed to do. You know, that kind of game. Yeah. <laughs> one... With a design ethos, I want to say, more clearly inspired by classic tabletop games than a lot of contemporary RPGs. And I think I've got this right, but I've read some places that one of, like, FromSoft's big inspirations in designing Dark Souls mechanically was translating the tropes and the general, like, game feel of these classic kind of obtuse dungeon-crawling RPGs from the, the 90s, which mechanically just wouldn't work at all today, to a more contemporary, fluid, and kind of dynamic action RPG. Which makes sense, because if you play the first Dark Souls, there's a handful of mechanics like um, the Transient Curse, for instance, that seem totally out of place and, like, mechanically superfluous, but it's like, oh, if I was playing a game like, say you know, wizardry or something like that, Baldur's Gate, I may need to use this special item to defeat one enemy. And they also worked on a duology of games for the Xbox, which I have not played as I don't own an Xbox, but have seen full playthroughs of, called Otogi. Uh, Otogi Myth of Demons in late 02, and Otogi Immortal Warriors in late 03. Again, this will be a running theme throughout this little section, but FromSoft's uh, output is frankly insane. And those games are extremely dynamic, like, uh, I want to call them less polished character action games, like a DMC or something like that, mm -hmm. with scores of magic and weapons that you can unlock and, like, constant uh, back-against-the-wall combat. It's really punchy, kind of frenetic to watch, incorporates scores of characters and creatures from folklore, both great games that are severely underappreciated. But the, the gist of this is, these guys know how to do their RPGs, and they also really know how to do their combat. Um, they also produced a game in 04, I would be remiss in uh, neglecting, called Metal Wolf Chaos, which is another mecha combat game, but uh, is set in a fictional United States where the president is overthrown by, like, a, an imperialistic, ultranationalist vice president uh, using an army of mecha, and so the president has to use his own, like, presidential giant robot to retake the U.S. one area at a time. Of course. It's insane. 
It is insane, and I love it. But if you look through FromSoft's discography, they've released, uh, really, an absurd amount of games across scads of different genres. They've, uh, like, worked on uh, side games, little, like, um, auxiliary titles for the Monster Hunter franchise. They've, uh, they released a game called uh, Ninja Blade, which is a pretty solid character action game uh, based around, like, fighting a parasitic invasion of Japan. According to this, about a week before Demon Souls was released. The the point is, their turnaround is insane and has stayed so throughout the years. Um, currently, they're working on Elden Ring, a ostensibly more open and, like, sprawling Souls-like that is a, apparently their most significant, sizable project to date that features um, background, so, like, um, a, a general context and story that received uh, some work from George R.R. R. Martin of A Song of Ice and Fire fame. I have only one thing to say. George R.R. R. Martin needs to stop taking all of these side projects and finally start writing his goddamn books. He might need to stop doing everything else and just finish friggin' Elden Ring at this rate. <laughs> but the gist of it is, these games, this, this studio kind of came from nowhere to take over the world, but if you look back at their history, They've enjoyed nearly three decades of really consistent output of, correct me if I'm wrong, Seth, but based on what I know, almost universally high-quality games. Yes, definitely. Like, I'm looking through their discog here. Do you see anything that would be just a complete and total flop in your memory? I, I see, no. at worst, like, average. Oh, they made Cookie and Cream? They did! The Adventures of Cookie and Cream. Nice. Um, but yeah, I, I think that they really have a very consistent um, quality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and currently they're just going strong under the direction of President Hidetaka Miyazaki. But as much as I love like chewing up time recounting like vague general backstories of multinational corporations, um, we're really here to talk about kind of the, the souls-like um, oeuvre and the impact it's had on the gaming space over the past 10 years. So... I think maybe the best way to to start here is um, explaining, like, as players, people who have gone through these games, what our experiences, our initial experiences with Souls Likes kind of were like, and what we think maybe distinguishes them from other types of action RPGs. Because it's generally agreed upon now, like, a Souls Like is a thing of its own, but it's not clearly codified as to what, you know, what criteria qualifies a game as a Souls. Like, it's more of a, a mechanical and atmospheric feel, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So, go ahead, Seth. What what are your experiences like? What do you think sets them apart? What What's your general take? Well, uh, for me, basically, how when I picture myself a Souls-like game, uh, I always think of, of course, a game that's very hard, but not unfair. Mm -hmm. So uh, it has a very high uh, skill cap. Uh, it focuses more on the skill of the individual uh, player rather than on uh, strategies. Um, yes. So if, if I remember correctly, most of the boss fights uh, that I've encountered in Dark Souls series uh, were not uh, mechanically complicated, but they really had a high uh, skill cap for, for the player. Also, I, I, when I think about Souls-like, I think about uh, grim environments. Mm -hmm. Almost all of them have very grim environments, very uneasy feeling w while you're playing, very um, depressing settings. 
Um, and also, when I think about them, I think about story that is not in your face. Yes. That is very subtly put in the background, and you have to go a little bit out of your way to figure out what the hell happened. Absolutely. There's there's this general quality uh, to varying degrees. Like, I think a game like Hollow Knight, for instance, is more explicit with its story. But yeah. generally, there is this implicit kind of opt-in narrative where there's a really detailed, rich, not not plot so much because you're not doing much in a lot of souls likes like your character mm -hmm. um in the story in the grand scheme of things but there's this huge like um mythos this huge history that you can dive into through item descriptions through bestiary entries in some games through right. um listening to not really conversing with but just having insane npcs ramble at you and then cackle ominously um yeah that allows you to understand, like, the setting and that this thousands of years of history that preceded your involvement. Like, the way a lot of people explain them is all of, like, the crazy epic battles and, like, great miracles have already, like, been and gone. And you are kind of moving through in a lot of these games, I think, of... Uh, this doesn't apply to Neo so much, but certainly to Bloodborne, to the original, like, Soul series, to um, to Hollow Knight, to Dead Cells, kind of. You're going yep. through and just kind of sweeping things up after everybody's severely, like, effed up the world. Basically, how I would describe it is that in most of the Souls-like games, your protagonist is just a vessel. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, um, I wouldn't say that they're a protagonist, even. They're not a character. They're just... A, a means to show you the world they're like a vector for for your yeah. presence yeah now i think two things that are important to point out to our listeners who may be a little bit less familiar with this this style of game is that especially when i see independent developers try to emulate the souls like formula things that maybe that are overemphasized as part and parcel of it are uh as you say difficulty uh, like, lots of people think that a Souls-like is just a very hard, vaguely action RPG-ish game. That's not That's yeah. not true. Um, that fairness is a huge part of it. But also, because um, I've seen lots of games do this after Dark Souls became popular. Not even RPGs. Like, just the inclusion of a stamina meter and, like, more resource management. Like, oh, you've got to really judiciously use your healing items or your mana restoratives or things like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, that wasn't like a key element of the Souls-like formula, though, it was a way that the players, or I think the devs encouraged players to stop and pace themselves and, like, adhere to a kind of rhythm, a kind of intentional pace, even in combat. Yes, exactly. Um, for my part, I, I agree with absolutely everything you said insofar as, like, what these games are and what they feel like. And I'll add that the ability to opt in or out of almost anything, this kind of real freedom of engagement is something mm -hmm. that really characterizes a lot of these games for me. It is at no point in many of them essential to talk to usually more than a handful of NPCs, no matter how many of them there are, if you don't want to. You don't have to do additional quest lines for rewards if you don't want to. You don't have to fight in some of these games half the bosses if you don't want to. You don't have to yeah. use complex magic systems or leveling or any of that if you don't want to anything is possible and the player is able to and this is where kind of the elitist segment of the fan base i think does new players a great disservice they're able to go in and appreciate 
each of the elements of the, the gameplay, each mechanic, each weapon as it's introduced to them and play around without somebody standing over their shoulder telling them through a tutorial or what have you, you need to do it like this and find a way of maneuvering through that world that is both workable and enjoyable for them. Exactly. And I think also one of the, the things that describe Souls-like games is the freedom of exploration. So they're very much not linear. They, they toss you into the game. You are a nobody in the middle of nothing. And then they just tell you, okay, go play now. And I think they're also games fundamentally. I've heard people say Dark Souls is about challenge or it's about difficulty. I don't think that's true because no. as you said, fairness is a huge part of it. Dark Souls is not necessarily traditionally quote unquote hard. Well, no, sorry. Um, Yeah, it's not overly difficult. It's just challenging in that, as you say, it requires players to to learn their way around each challenge. What can each enemy do? Where am I safe in an arena and where am I not? What can my weapon do? What's its effective range? All of these things that you kind of have to intuit. And I would argue these games at their best are inherently, this is something that only a teacher would say, right? But they're inherently <laughs> about learning. They're about education. Specifically, they're about what we would call experiential learning, learning by doing. Yeah. Um, the game contrary to Western marketing, like the original Dark Souls, it did not want to beat you down. That's not the point. It doesn't want to pose this masochistic challenge to players. The idea, and the devs have been very intentional about this from the first day, is to provide challenges that give players a legitimate sense of fulfillment when they find a way to navigate them that works for them. So the idea is, as you move through, and this integrates the world, this integrates the narrative, as you mentioned, Seth, Everything you do in a really well-rounded Souls-like, even if it's picking up an item that you're never going to use, teaches you something because, oh wait, that little item has some lore about it. I learned something about the world. Or it teaches me something about an enemy from the description. Oh, maybe they're weak to this. It teaches you every time you execute a new maneuver or use a new buff item or use um, a new weapon you're constantly learning intuitively how things feel and then oftentimes extrapolating what you can do with them in other contexts. Like, I think of the first two bosses of Dark Souls 1, the Asylum Demon and the Taurus Demon, right? Yeah. Um, you are explicitly told to perform a plunging attack, like this big leaping stab uh, from above on the Asylum Demon to drain yeah. like half its health. I think that was the first and the last time that a Souls-like told you what to do with a certain boss. Uh, except, I want to say the Ancient Wyvern in Dark Souls 3, because you're also told to perform a jumping attack on its head, because that's really the, the way you're intended to kill it. But you're right, largely. And then for the Taurus Demon, the arena is designed in just such a way... That And this does not happen often for Souls-like bosses, very rarely, but you can also perform a plunging attack on that boss. And it's very difficult to like work around its feet uh, and attack it traditionally otherwise. So you're like, oh, this thing that I did earlier worked on that big enemy. Maybe it'll work here against this big enemy. And it just so happens that the buff item you can get to apply an effect to your weapon also happens to imbue that weapon with a status effect or like elemental damage that the boss is weak against. So just by playing around and getting a feel for the world without being told explicitly what to do, I feel like Dark Souls teaches you and good Souls-likes teach you 
a great deal about the worlds you're entering into and the ways they work mechanically and narratively. You're always learning. And for me, as somebody who works in education, as somebody who loves uh, the study of like education and didactic techniques, they're absolutely fascinating little joys to play. To our next point, I, I just kind of want to ask, Seth, as both like a, a player and a streamer, what was your... What was your initial experience with not just Dark Souls, but Souls likes in general? Like, how would you how would you describe that to people who aren't familiar with? So, so generally, um, I came into the Souls like series with expectation of the game being uh, unfair and being super hard. I also was a little bit scared of streaming it because I was aware of its um, elitist, um, you know. Yeah. Um, community which would then come into my stream and tell me no you don't do it like this do it like that and stuff like that but to my surprise i got exactly the opposite experience uh, mm -hmm. on twitch there is quite a lot of players that are doing some sort of challenge runs and enjoy uh watching uh new newcomers into the series and see how they you know wiggle their way through the uh, through the various bosses also, uh, since my first Souls-like was Dark Souls 3, I had quite a pleasant experience because the game was more or less polished. So all of the bosses, for me, they didn't feel unfair. Uh, every time that I got beaten, I, I always felt like it was my fault. So mm -hmm. that's actually a pretty good feeling because even though you died, you still know where you messed up and you still know what to do on the second try so basically my experiences with bosses were you enter the arena you get one shot and die you enter the arena second time you you roll from the first attack then you mm -hmm. got killed by a different attack okay then you come third time then you know you dodge both of those attack it attacks for the third time but this time you know it also falls on the ground and then you're like oh now i can attack yep and it's like over and over, um, I don't think... Well, in Dark Souls 3, I don't think that I had any boss fight where I didn't die at least five times. Um, because most of them... That's the way that I'm also learning about the game is... But my first run is always, you know, I just run in the middle sure. of the arena and wait what happens, right? Oh, the deacons. You probably got the deacons in a couple tries. Mm, I think that I got them in like three tries or something. And uh, Yorm. I think Yorm, uh, I, I was wait. you might have gotten Yorm on the first try. Which one was Yorm? The giant. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, I, I did that one, but that one was really, I, I don't know, to me it feel like, felt like a little bit more of a mini boss rather than a big boss. I don't know, its attacks were way too predictable, so I really did not take it that, that seriously. You completed the quest line that allowed uh, an ally to enter the fight with you. and Exactly, if, yeah. If you manage that, which is hard to do, by the way, because the, the character in question shows up in some really hard-to-reach locations, um, that character will just devastate the boss for you. But you're right, it's a very... As Dark Souls 3 goes, it's a very manageable encounter. But yeah. Um, other than that, I mean, I the, the way that I play these games is I'm not really that interested in the lore. Like, we mm -hmm. have this re recurring joke in my stream that uh, Brady is the lore master and I'm the murder hobo. You know, he's explaining me things as I'm running around and waving my sword and making stuff dead. So, so yeah, when it comes to the story of the souls, like, basically my experiences were what Brady was interpreting for me and also what I would manage to gather from defeating the bosses. 
Um, a little bit of a different experience I had with Dark Souls 1, which is the one that I played after Dark Souls 3. And it was mostly because I played it on the Switch. So um, it was 30 FPS. It was a remastered uh, version, but it was still on 30 FPS and it still felt very clunky. If I remember correctly, um, I think it was the Taurus, uh, the, the the guy on the um, on the wall. Yeah. yeah so, so you explained to me that um, uh, basically the gimmick with the dropping on its head, but I didn't listen because I never listen. So what I did is I accidentally tossed myself off the wall and the boss flew with me and I killed him that way. I yes. mean, I died in the process, but you know, boss fight was over. It's still a victory. It's still a victory. It still counted. It was still good, you know, point for us. Uh, I would, however, say that my favorite experience with the Souls likes would be still Hollow Knight. Mm -hmm. um, that one, still to this day, um, I have I all only had nice experiences. I generally like uh, platformers and Metroidvania game games. So Hollow Knight was right up my alley, but just, you know, the entire um, background music, the ambience, the, the way that the art is presented, for me, it was just like a very full experience. I felt like that game did almost nothing wrong. So it's interesting you bring, you bring Hollow Knight up, because I think it's no coincidence, there's a correlation here I'd like to explore, that a lot of, especially like indie or low, uh, smaller budget um, Souls-likes have integrated, or rather Souls-like mechanics have been integrated into Metroidvania-style games. Have you noticed mm -hmm. that as well? Yeah, like there's Salt yeah. and Sanctuary, there's just a lot of them in like uh, the, the Steam space especially. Yeah. Um, why do you think that is? And do you think there is something about the Souls-like ethos or the mechanics that complement Metroidvanias or vice versa? Because I want to say... Outside of very small indie games, for most of the 2000s, we didn't see a lot of really great Metroidvanias. Yeah, like, to be honest, I think that majority of the reason uh, why we have so much, you know, uh, even shitty um, uh, Metroidvania slash Souls-like games on Steam would be because they are a bit easier to make than, um, like, a Souls-like copy. Uh, yeah. Not Souls, like Dark Souls copy, that's what I wanted to say. Uh, however, I feel like um, the, the Metroidvanias in general have a strong connection to Souls-like uh, games, mostly mm -hmm. uh, due to Castlevania, like the older Castlevania games, which were notorious for their difficulty, especially in boss fights. However, they weren't that much skill-based as strategy-based, but still I see, see the connection there. And in, in Metroidvanias especially, there's this emphasis on, like, exploration and kind yep. of slow-paced, meticulous learning. Yeah. Um, like, I think this is so weird to say, given, like, the reputation of Dark Souls, but games like that, or, like, if I play Symphony of the Night, or I play any game that tasks me with both conquering significant challenges and exploring freely... Um, they have almost a meditative quality to them, yeah? A little bit, yeah. And then the boss fight starts and you want to kill everything. Your family included. Because there's two more things I want to touch on for certain. My own experiences with the series, just to provide a little additional context, as I said, date back right around to the release of Dark Souls 1, where one of my friends at the time like had a copy for Xbox 360. And he was like, man, you've got to try this. It's really... 
And and he, of course, was one of those, you know, if you just do X, Y, Z, and A, B, C, 1, 2, 3, all these 8,700 things, it's not that bad. Yeah. Um, and I got throttled days on end, even with getting, like, a particularly potent weapon quite early on in the game. And I just didn't understand it, right? Because this is, this is one thing that Souls-likes have gotten a lot better at. But there is a really significant, in like Dark Souls 1 and Demon Souls, there's this really significant difficulty curve because it's not that maneuvers and the like are under-explained to players, not at all. It's that oftentimes this plethora of like stats that both you, the player, and your gear come bundled with uh, aren't really given enough attention early on. Um, like kind of all of the different parameters that they affect, right? Yeah. It's something that the series has gotten better at uh, and something Definitely, that Souls yeah. has gotten much better at, indeed. Uh, I'm playing one right now called Biomass that uh, has four stats. Another one I completed recently, Trials of Argolis, has only three. Um, they're, they're finding ways of making this formula more accessible. But uh, I got throttled up and down. I, like, put Dark Souls down and did not touch it again for years. I got a copy on PS3, I want to say around 2013 or 14. I was like, you know what? I, I've seen some stuff online. I'm uh, I'm gonna beat this mother. And it was, it took some time. It took like playing off and on across like a couple, couple three weeks. But I barely managed to beat Dark Souls one. Then I got Dark Souls two, which I consider to be my personal favorite of the series. It's kind of like the Black Sheep, but I think. It iterated on extant mechanics and narrative really, really well. Introduced a lot of cool things like new multiplayer modes or covenants and uh, um, this really, really interesting new school of sorcery, hexes, which were like extremely powerful but often unwieldy dark magic. Mm-hmm. Um, just a lot of cool stuff uh, with a really cool world and scores of bosses. With the DLC included, Dark Souls 2 has, I want to say, 44 bosses. And I played through much of Dark Souls 2, Bloodborne, and then Dark Souls 3 with my best friend at the time, who's like a huge fan of the franchise. And we we just loved exploring these worlds together. My friend uh, is is very much the murder hobo, totally unconcerned <laughs> with the lore. Um, but dude can like bring down a boss in one of those games like it's nobody's business. I just really loved the fact that I was being immersed in a series of really rich fantasy worlds where every item I picked up, every uh, location I went to, every enemy I fought had some kind of established lore connected to it. So there was this like puzzle I could piece together. But also, this is what kind of makes a Souls like for me. I think I've talked about this on stream. I don't think I did last week on the podcast. So for any of you joining us, my favorite element of game design, or my favorite two elements, are audiovisual design. Like, visual and sound artists are, I think, gravely underappreciated in the gaming space. They do so much and such incredible work. And then boss design. I love, 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 love really intricate, complex, and daunting boss battles. Demon Souls and Dark Souls, Demon Souls especially because it had so many wonderful gimmick bosses, Um, introduced really complex and kind of challenging, memorable bosses to a AAA space that, correct me if I'm wrong, Seth, but that time, like the early PS3, Xbox 360 era, it felt like the AAA gaming industry was moving increasingly towards these um, rough emulations, uh, streamlined emulations of like the atmosphere and feel of like Hollywood films. Uh, And boss design, like capping off a, a... contained level 
was abandoned almost entirely. Yeah, I, I think that at th that point, the entire video game industry kind of started switching more towards this interactive movie kind of feel. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit like, um, what's it called? Uh, the latest uh, Kojima game. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, un uh, Death Stranding, right? Death Stranding, exactly. Where basically you're not doing anything and you just have like a very... Uh, atmospheric experience and it's like a movie you know um, it, they didn't really I, I don't know I felt like at that time so early PlayStation 3 moving on to PlayStation 4 uh, mostly boss fights were either some sort of like reaction uh, type of fights or they would or, or so, some sort of like um, you know those games like Wolf Among Us when you just have a a certain sequence of keys you have to press. Yeah, so honestly, uh, playing a Souls-like after such a long time of having games like this in my backlog, uh, I felt refreshed because mm -hmm. it really reminded me of when I was a kid. So yes. I, I, I like to retell the story over and over again, but the first game I ever beat was Castlevania II when I was four years old. And I remember that it was so hard, but I was so proud of myself when I did that. And honestly, from that moment on, I have, haven't found a game that was as challenging as that one. And for me, Dark Souls and generally Souls-likes brought mm -hmm. back that feeling of accomplishment that I had when I was a kid and I was so satisfied that I beat something that people consider to be hard. It, it also brings back, I think, not only traditional principles of level and world design, like, hey, the game, the games, none of the games, most Souls-likes are not linear. They've got, like, explorable worlds, but there are clearly distinct, totally, like, aesthetically and mechanically separate areas, like traditional levels that you run through, and there's a big boss who fits the atmosphere or the tone or the mechanics of the level really well at the end. And those encounters tend to be really memorable, right? Because, again, even when games in that big-budget games in that console generation tried to introduce... And I, I'm not including, like, Nintendo stuff in here because Nintendo's always kind of marched to the beat of their own drum. But more often than not, when they tried to introduce a boss battle that wasn't in a cutscene or a QTE or what have you, it was just, hey, here's one of the two or three enemy types in this game with slightly more health and a unique model. Yeah, so, like, the games in the last years were mostly like, okay, this is a nice area, your reward for com completing it is gonna be a very long cinematic. But oh, yeah. in Souls-likes, it's, okay, this is a nice area, your reward for completing it is this very nice boss fight to like wrap yes. up your entire experience so everything that you've learned up until that point now we're gonna challenge it it's like an exam after you know a semester and i think um kind of what i appreciate about like action rpgs but souls likes in particular is they feel like a way more natural evolution as you said of the types of game design and principles that we grew up with scaled for a wider audience slightly and also way more sophisticated uh, hardware and software. Mm -hmm. Like, that is what that type of game design philosophy would have looked like had it continued on into the 2000s and 2010s and not been displaced by the kind of cinematic approach. Yep. Um, one thing, then, I want to, to ask about, while we're kind of focusing on this, while we're focusing on the time period, the uh, initial games were released because i think this is so important i feel like dark souls could not have had the cultural 
in and economic impact that it did had it been released at literally any other time because going back to the the didactic quality of these games uh i feel like a huge part of their appeal is that they've created a kind of like intraplayer interaction that is very atypical for modern games and it's kind of like as you said earlier, Seth, something that so motivated the the original Legend of Zelda's creators. We're not going to have multiplayer... It, it, well, we are. Dark Souls and Mini Souls likes do incorporate multiplayer, competitive and cooperative. But mm -hmm. they also encourage players interacting with one another in real life to collaborate to find secrets or share information or obscure little lore or details. Like, the, the games are packed full of secret walls and doors and weapons that do things that you're never told about and are tied to secret stats and things like that and that encourages a community and while yes some of the dark souls community is quite elitist and toxic i've also found a great deal of it to be extremely encouraging and like positive yes um that component of the fan base will like rally around new players and cheer them on and build them up and also again teach each other important obscure little things about the game hey did you know about the illusory wall here did you know that those boots will have your falling damage and so on mm -hmm. um and it's just another way that the game encourages you to learn and to teach really be receptive i think that's great but the game wouldn't be able to do that and it wouldn't be that popular i think if online gaming through both like streaming platforms and traditional video upload or video sharing sites like youtube had not, for a certain value, exploded in the late 2000s. What say yes. you? Yeah, I agree. Because uh, just this, uh, the fact that you are able to share your accomplishment with people all over the world or show everyone that specific way that you used to beat the boss or, oh my mm -hmm. God, look at this, I, I beat the boss without taking a single hit. That It added so much worth to Souls-like games that it raised their value exponentially. And it also significantly lowered the bar for entry, right? Because yeah. people are able to show and teach and help each other. I think, like, if you released a game like Dark Souls, say, in the late 90s or early 2000s, do you think it would be just too arcane for many people? It would be way too complicated because at that point, not that many people would have access to the uh, to internet in general. So th that this one is the type mm -hmm. of game that uh, really benefits for from uh, the ability to share videos and also to write uh, some sort of tutorial or a walkthrough. And do you think? Obviously, I'm going to give us a, a like little opportunity to like build ourselves or our platform up here. Um, do you think streaming in particular has had like a positive impact on the series, or vice versa? Uh, I definitely think it it has had a very um, well. Streaming in general has a, has had a very nice impact on the games because it allowed more people to um, participate, even if they're not playing themselves. Uh, specifically, mm -hmm. there are people who just do not enjoy playing video games as much as watching them. And yep. yeah, it, it gave them a chance to see what Dark Souls is all, all about and uh, participate in a way. And also the other way around, I find that uh, the Souls-like games are very beneficial for streaming because mm -hmm. there are so many different ways that you can beat the game, uh, so many challenge runs that you can, um, that you can do that it's always, um, it, it's just a well of content. 
Yeah, and it's content particularly well-suited to kind of like the kinetic, uh, dynamic atmosphere of a live stream, or at least yeah. I think the kind of atmosphere that you and I like to go for. Yeah. Because um, there are scores of RPGs, like more traditional RPGs, that are fantastic games and have wonderful lore and world building and they can be mechanically interesting. But the fact that so many of them don't use like a totally fluid like action battle system and that many of them will often bog you down with minutes upon minutes of cutscenes at a time very frequently, I think makes them less well suited for many streamers than something like Dark Souls, where again, you can opt in to all of that, right? Also, you can uh, like take some very weird gimmicks and add them yep. to your experience. For example, on my live stream, what we like to do is for every 10 deaths, I have to do 10 squats. So that is like a another entertaining thing to see for the viewers and for me to do of course and that is not something that i can do with other games because i don't know i cannot do two squats if i miss one gem in spyro or something like that so that's right also like your your calves would explode if you did that because it's it's always like a 20 piece it's always one of the 20 gems 20 value gems that you miss every time and you know where it usually is behind the entrance portal it's behind the entrance portal or it's in the tall grass oh yeah that's something we could talk about later, like for a future episode, classic platformers. Yeah, but uh, one thing that I wanted to segue into was um, mm -hmm. when you asked me about uh, if I feel that Metroidvanias had like a nice source for uh, Souls-like series to kind of merge into, I feel like one other genre that is very well suited to be merged with Souls-like is roguelikes. Yes, absolutely. And we have one game that is actually the amazing proof of that, and that is Dead Cells. Mm -hmm. Dead Cells absolutely exploded when it came out. Uh, if I remember correctly, it first came out on, um, on the PC, and then afterwards yes. it also came out on consoles. But its release on the Switch console was so good, it sold uh, 2.4 million units. And even the developers themselves said that Switch sales were, and I quote, insane. Yeah, no, it's uh, it plays phenomenally on more or less any platform. Yes. And I think there's something interesting about like the incorporation of, or the, the merging of Souls-like and Roguelike elements, because mm -hmm. it creates an atmosphere then that's even more conducive to pick up and play learning, and especially to streaming. Yeah. Um, but... Like, you've been playing lots of Dead Cells lately, and I've, I've played a bit of it myself. I, I love the game. I find it to be just as compelling as, and a little bit more forgiving than Dark Souls. Yeah. Um, what's your overall take? What Since we're going to talk about, like, Souls likes now, some of the game's big-name games that are inspired by um Dark Souls, what's your take on Dead Cells for, for those who may not have a lot of experience with it? So I think that uh, one of the big selling points for Dead Cells was actually its roguelike elements. Uh, so like the procedurally generated um, areas, um, all of the different like weapons and uh, power-ups that you can get. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's made progress and the learning curve much more visible. So every time you have to start again, go through the same area, fight that same boss, you actually felt like you were doing it differently. You were making yep. more progress. And you could see that because all of your skills would be stronger. Uh, you would get different um, types of weapons that you would discover uh, on the way, etc. And I feel that is what gave it so much more uh, replayability. 
um that even you know the the fact that the boss fights are very hard and they do have mm -hmm. that souls like element was very neglectable and it made it a bit more accessible to people who are not really into souls like genre absolutely it got um a lot of the hardcore roguelike crowd like people who were really interested in binding of isaac or games like that interested yes. i think in that type of game which is absolutely lovely. There was also, I think, a lot of uh, bleed over with the uh, the Hollow Knight fandom. Yes, yes. Um, and, and also, uh, the, um, the story itself was, again, not in your face. It was very subtle. And it mm -hmm. was mostly, I would say, like a parody of uh, Dark Souls story. Um, yeah, it's got a sense of humor about it. Yes, it does. Yes, exactly. Like, everything is grim, everything is miserable, but haha, you know. So it, it's kind of cute. And also, I am a big sucker for uh, pixel art. So yes. for, for me, just the design of it in general is absolutely amazing. Um, speaking of uh, pixel art, uh, roguelike, souls-likes, I've recently been playing one that you can get dirt cheap on Steam made by, I believe, a single person um, called Gloom that is done in a silhouette art style um, and takes place uh, takes a great deal of inspiration from FromSoft's own Bloodborne, a gothic horror Souls-like um, that's done exceedingly well and that you can find me screaming incoherently at over on my YouTube channel. That was the first one that I, that I saw from you. Yes, yes ma'am, that is how we met, me cursing at a horse on TV. Gloom is an insanely well-made game and I think has maybe one of the lowest bars for entry in the entire Souls-like oeuvre. I've yet to beat it because like getting a really ideal run is very difficult, but it keeps things nice and simple. You have a melee weapon, a ranged weapon, collect gold and bullets from enemies that you can use to enhance these items at like storefronts and proceed through, I think in a given run, anywhere from four to five different environments uh, fighting unique and eldritch bosses at the conclusion of each. Um, you've got a very generous dodge roll that allows you to avoid most any damage. There's a lot of like very obvious nods to Lovecraftian fiction, as well as, I believe, one boss who's very loosely based on Lovecraft himself. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, no, no. It's a, it's a really well-made game, very cheap, very accessible, and if you want something, I think, lighter to kind of get into the if you're interested in trying this this genre, if you're interested in entering this oeuvre, like Dead Cells or Gloom would be like great points of entry. Um, as far as, but but they're both like 2D side-scrolling Souls-likes that take fairly loose uh, interpretations of like key mechanics and do really interesting things with them. Yes. Uh, on consoles or in the 3D space, you find a lot more games that are like, and I don't say this pejoratively. I think uh, I think there's genuine merit to this, and I've never gotten people saying, "Oh, this game is bad because it's too much like the game I really like." Um, like you know, that's oh, it's more of something you like, right? That should be something we receive positively. Mm -hmm. um, you find a lot of games that take more direct inspiration, mechanical and narrative, from Dark Souls, like a Lords of the Fallen, The Surge, and what you've been playing recently, Seth, Neo. Oh, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Neo and your experiences with it, and then I'll come back with some info on other 3D Souls-likes. Right, so Neo was basically the third Souls-like game that I was playing on stream, and I still am, by the way. Uh, mm -hmm. And what I really like about it is that it's a bit more faster. So mm -hmm. you die faster, you kill faster, you move faster. While in uh, Dark Souls, at some points, you would have to 
kind of like you know stop and um think about your build um may maybe try to figure out some weapons or whatever in neo it's more like mm, you need to find a proper way to react to certain situations so uh in my case it was how to break uh the stamina bar of your enemy and exploit that Mm -hmm. um, also, when it comes to boss fights, they're much more, um, they're less forgiving than the Dark Souls ones. Yes, they are. In Dark Souls, you know, when an enemy hits you or when a boss hits you, usually it takes maybe like one third of your health bar. So you At still have, most. yeah, so you still have a little bit of room, you know, to wiggle around and maybe like recover or whatever. In Neo, usually it's a one hit KO. Well, yeah. not always, but like mostly. I either it's a one-hit KO or it stun locks you, so every other consecutive hit just you know blows you into bits. Um, I quite like Neo. Um, I actually prefer it over the Soul series, mostly because of its speed. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, the the combat is much faster. It's more uh, reaction based, and yeah, generally I feel like it's. Um, just you know the, the the speed of it is what makes it a little bit more appealing to me than the dark souls series yeah and the fact that the same brutal rules that apply to you like especially regarding like getting your stance broken or yeah. stamina depleted and all that do apply to enemies and bosses too so it's just yes. as easy for you to exploit and like devastate them yeah exactly most battles in Neo end in a matter of seconds, whether in victory or defeat. Yeah, and it's quite realistic. For example, you start off by fighting bandits who can barely, um, you know, handle a, a spear or a sword. Mm -hmm. And usually it's so heavy for them that if they swing it twice, they, they fall on the ground and cannot get up. But then as you progress, you start fighting uh, ronins, which are, you know, trained in uh, in sword fights or, you know, fighting with a spear. And they handle it much better. You can see that they have some moves uh, that are unpredictable. You can see that they know how to guard against your attacks. And then afterwards, you start f fighting demons to whom the stamina rules also apply, but in a bit of a different way. So there you cannot just deplete it uh, as much as you want. They can also regenerate it quite fast because, you know, they're demons. Yeah, it's uh, I, I like it that it's basically applies the same rules to both sides. I never felt like it was unfair. Yeah, no, they, they, exactly that. And a great deal of the game's balance, at least in my opinion, comes from the integration of kind of a, a rage mode called uh, Living Weapon. Yeah. That allows you to temporarily turn the game into a hack and slash, effectively. Yeah, basically. And also, I, I don't know, it, I, I wouldn't call it, like, cheating. You know, so, some people don't like no, playing no. with uh, living weapons because they're like, oh, it makes the game too easy. But for me, it's like, well, it, it's a gimmick that the developers wanted us to use. Otherwise, they wouldn't put it in the game. It does and... make boss fights a little bit more easier. But it, it's still, like, you still have to watch out to, you know, dodge the enemy or otherwise your entire mm -hmm. living weapon charge just disappears. So it's not like, you know, you just press one button and then keep pressing it until the boss is dead. Mm -hmm. Because for reference, the way it works is the living weapon gauge that uh, governs the uh, alternate form's, uh, dur like, duration also serves as an additional bar of health. So every time you take damage, that duration... Uh, the living weapon gauge is depleted and when it's gone you obviously lose your living weapon charge for a time and have to return to your normal state and health bar wherever it was um 
Also, I would point out, yeah, it's totally fair because there's plenty of human bosses in Neo and Neo 2 that use living weapon forms themselves. Yes, exactly. So th those um, like warriors that are trained the same way that you have been trained and that they have access to the, like the, these guardian spirits can also use the, sp the living weapon. So it's not like, you know, that it's just something that your character is special you know, just mm -hmm. like the, the chosen warrior of blah blah, you know, or something like that. It, no, he's exactly the same as the other characters around him. He, the only thing is that he's your protagonist. Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree with you that insofar as like console-based Souls-likes go, I, I've had bits and pieces of others that I enjoy more than the Neo duology, but if you want games that are just really well made, like around the, uh, all around, uh, you would be hard-pressed to find something better than Neo or Neo 2, which yep. I think the first game now is quite cheap with all of its DLC included. I think that I got mine, uh, and it is the complete edition for maybe like 8 euros or something like that. Yeah, and they're but they are planning on like re-releasing or remastering both of them in a collection for the next gen, right? Does yes, that sound yes. right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so eyes peeled for that, friends. Yep. Um, as far as 3D Souls-likes that we've come across this year that maybe you haven't played, Seth, or like over the past couple of years, um, just things that our audience may want to be aware of and check out at length, there are um, the Surge duology mm -hmm. by the developers of, like, I think the first uh, Souls-like to really catch a lot of attention on consoles after Dark Souls release, which was called Lords of the Fallen. Lords of the Fallen was this ridiculous, like, dark fantasy game set in what looked like a mixture of a traditional like uh, alpine monastery and a heavy metal album cover uh with this big bulky warrior and his big bulky weapons fighting off hordes of demons from another dimension uh it was criticized by some as being a little too derivative and just a little clunky compared to dark souls because again even if you get like the fastest weapons in the game, you are still like a big boy and therefore <laughs> move yeah. uh, pretty slowly. Thankfully, enemies do too, but it's like um, it's like a very heavy, sluggish Dark Souls. It's like post buffet Souls. <laughs> um, but they released years later, taking some of the criticism on board. The same team released The Surge, which was popular enough to merit a sequel. A game set in a dystopian future where um, you, as a player, trapped in a number of facilities governed by a mega corporation, like a, a manufacturing facility in the first game, essentially, have to fight this technological plague that has overridden all of the machinery. And um, including all of like the work harnesses, these really high yield industrial exoskeletons that a lot of the workers were wearing. Um, and you have to hack and slash your way through all of them in order to get to like the, the source of this uh, rogue, rogue code and defeat it. And the interesting mechanic that Surge adds to the conversation is the ability to specifically target enemies uh, like limbs, humanoid or non-humanoid entities. Uh, and it's kind of a, a uh, pick-your-poison mechanic because if you strike an enemy in an area where they're unarmored, you can deplete their health much faster and like just cut them down to size. But if you manage to do enough damage to an area of especially a humanoid opponent's uh, body that is armored and perform a special execution on them when their health gets low, you'll sever that part of like their rig or their armor and be able to pick it up and use it for yourself. The same uh, like mechanic uh, governs the acquisition of weapons. 
So it's like risk-reward. If Do I want that weapon or do I want that armor bad enough to put myself in harm's way against this guy for an extra, you know, 10-15 seconds? Um, they're really well-made games, and I would recommend them wholeheartedly. There's also Mortal Shell, right, which we both played. Mm-hmm. What's your experience with Mortal Shell being like so far? For for reference, it's a small indie Souls-like that came out just a few months ago and was insanely well-received. Yeah, basically how I heard about it is I've seen a lot of people recommend it as a game to fill in the void before the Demon Souls remake came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, I really liked it. So it takes a little bit of a different approach. You don't really collect weapons and gear, but you collect uh, corpses. More specifically, you have mm-hmm. a couple of uh, corpses of warriors that have died, and you take the role of them and try to you know, find the most suitable one for a specific situation. Yeah, kind of like uh, you you go out into the world and gather these these corpses to serve as different classes. Yes, exactly. And uh, I really like the the boss fights because, like, depending on which uh, corpse you take with you into the well, let's just call them shells because they're shells. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who would have thunk? Um, basically, depending on which shell you take into the the fight, the fight can be either extremely easy or extremely difficult, and yeah. it's it's a completely different battle depending on how you approach it. There's one shell uh, who is basically teleporting Skeletor, <laughs> um, and I used none of the others for for my entire playthrough. Um, Mortal Shell, I think, has done really well, and it too, if you're looking to get into the series, but maybe don't want to be faced with, like, just impossible difficulty or, like, a difficulty curve, it's also eminently accessible, because each of the shells plays very, very differently, and most of the enemies, not all of them, but most of them, are humanoid, and therefore have pretty easy tells to read when it comes to their attacks. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, and it's a fairly compact experience. Like, if you got some friends together and sat down with mortal shell like in the late morning early afternoon you could beat it by the evening probably yeah and also um the storytelling is very similar to the dark soul story storytelling mm-hmm. so it's not in your face you just have to uh basically you have to use different items multiple times because that raises your familiarity with it and therefore yep. you will know more about it and also unlock different effects Oh, the emphasis on education and, like, learning through, like, just curiosity is so, so big in these games. And Mortal Shell does that better, I think, than almost any other Souls-like. It literally tickles your teacher pickle. Sure, yes. (laughs) Um, There's also, I I think it is worth discussing, there's also Hellpoint, a small or an indie Souls-like by Cradle Games that released, I want to say, August or somewhere thereabouts. And it... Like, as far as aesthetics go, ticks all of my boxes. It is an eldritch cosmic horror sci-fi story set on a space station being run by human and alien cults with uh, three different alien gods who have been summoned into different areas of the station warring between uh, themselves, obviously with, like, what remained of the people caught up in the middle, with uh, these different alien species that they brought with them. And depending on which one of the gods you take down at certain points, uh, the others and their armies will become more prevalent in areas that you've already been through, for example. I just gotta say that uh, that combination of aesthetic is so random and so out of nowhere that it kind of reminds me of my cooking process, you know? A little bit of this, a little bit of that, mm, what is left over from yesterday? Yeah, yeah, but the, the thing about Mortal Shell, or Hellpoint, rather, is um, 
it sounds really intriguing, and in many ways it is. It's mechanically complex, and it's it's like the polar opposite of Mortal Shell. Um, it's a small team, but they made a game that is insanely complex mechanically, like with a bunch of different stats and weapons and items and all of that. Um, and for what it is, the game's levels, I feel like they're just way too big. Mm-hmm. Like, you will be climbing through a lot of maintenance corridors, and one giant golden temple that just kind of looks like an upscale hotel bathroom for a couple hours. And if I remember correctly, it wasn't really that polished, at least uh, when you were playing it. The final boss did not exist. Oh yes, the final boss just forgot to load its texture, so Brady was fighting nothing. I was fighting a black void in the shape of the final boss. But I've been assured that all of these things are being patched. Oh, alright. You were fighting your own nightmares. Sure. Uh... It, no, there wasn't a skateboard involved, so. <laughs> uh, neither a skateboard nor Penis 2, so I think we're good. <laughs> penis um, 2 on a skateboard. Oh, God. <laughs> penis 2 is pro me. skater. <laughs> they couldn't afford the Tony Hawk license anymore, so. Um, in all honesty, though, um, Hellpoint probably bears consideration despite its technical hiccups. Because when the game works, and I think, Seth, you, you've seen me play a fair amount of it. When it actually works, when the encounters work, when the level design works, it's a game that has a unique and kind of kind of compelling atmosphere, and it, it plays pretty well. Yes, uh, I was going to say that for, um, for a game made by a st- small studio, mm-hmm. I think that when it gets polished, it's going to be on par with the Dark Souls series. Yeah, it's really good for a game made by five people. Like, yeah. insanely good. Um, if CD Projekt Red released it, well, at this point, I wouldn't be surprised. But th- those are the major Souls-likes I've played or encountered this year that I have, like, really positive feelings for. Are there any more that you would like to mention, Seth, while we're here? No, I think that <clears throat> just for the fact that I wasn't really that much into Souls-like series up until a couple of months ago when I started with Dark Souls... Uh, mm-hmm. My just my backlog is not as filled as yours with the um, with the Souls like games. So my experiences come from bigger titles like Hollow Knight, Dead Cells, Dark Souls series, Neo. Um, but I think that you forgot to mention your most recent take, and that was Sekiro. Yes, no, no, that is a FromSoft title that um, kind of occupies a liminal space in the Souls-like community because it is the least Souls-like of any Souls-like I've played. Mm-hmm. And it's made by the Dark Souls crew. Um, it is a a samurai action game, or more specifically a ninjutsu action game, set in a mythologized late Sengoku-era Japan. And the entire game, I would argue, if you just want to get acclimated with the feel of FromSoft's newer games, you may want to start with either Bloodborne or Sekiro. Mm -hmm. Because the entire game uses, I would say, like Neo, this really fast-paced frenetic combat. But in the case of Sekiro, the game is almost entirely about defending. Yeah. In order to open enemies up for powerful singular attacks that will kill them in one go, instead of like having to to pick away at them, which you can do. It's difficult, but you can do it. Um, You have to perfectly time, uh, like, blocks and deflects, all accomplished with, like, one shoulder button, Mm -hmm. um, to, like, perfectly match up with their attack pattern, the rhythm of their attacks. Uh, And as, like, the game goes on, you'll have to incorporate special dodges, like jumping over sweep attacks to jump on an enemy's head Mario-style and, like, lower their stamina or uh, step on an enemy's blade or polearm when they try to thrust it at you. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and the the game then ends up feeling way more rhythmic and smooth than any other souls like i've played Mm -hmm. it's insanely well polished it's got a beautiful slightly more obvious story and world and uh one of the most remarkable assortments of bosses and mini bosses i've seen in in modern gaming i and with the game of the year update that was dropped i want to say at the end of october or november um, they have added like bonus costumes and little goodies to the game that you can unlock by completing brand new boss rush modes, um, which sounds right up my alley and also like something I can never manage. Um, but it, I would recommend it before I would recommend Dark Souls 1 or, or 3, honestly. I think it's very good. So there, there was this one thing that I've uh, stumbled upon while doing research for this episode, and that is that one of the earliest Souls-like games uh, is, well, people consider uh, Monster Hunter. And honestly, I'm not quite sure where I stand on that. Well, what is your opinion about that? Oh, God. Monster Hunter is... It's almost an entity into itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um. I, I get where some people are coming from. There's like these massive bosses you have to wear down and learn the behavior and weaknesses of and all that. But Monster Hunter feels more like, almost like a traditional like Western style hunting simulator, yeah. but with dinosaurs. Almost like they wanted to do a fantastic like gladiatorial take on an immersive sim. You know, something mm-hmm. like Deus Ex or Dishonored, where you've just got to learn every facet of this world and. Uh, there's a million different ways that interactive objects and characters will react to you Mm -hmm. and apply that to uh, the single-minded quest of bringing down these massive dragons. I would say it's not, in my mind, a Souls-like. It it occupies this bizarre niche entirely to itself. It's more of a simulator than anything else. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, yeah, I also wouldn't call it a Souls-like, to be honest. Uh, For me, it's kind of like a combination between like a weird JRPG and an action game. I mean, the only similarity that I find between Monster Hunter and the Souls-like are the boss fights, but also the bosses themselves are not really complex. It's more like they have an insane amount of health. So it's less about, you know, uh, skill, but more about patience. Yeah, absolutely. But that is interesting that people have been like drawing that that uh, similarity. Wait a minute, hold on. I'm I'm looking at Metacritic right now, Seven. I did not realize this until just now. Mm-hmm. Out of everything in the series, like with the exception of the Demon Souls remake, which has been very well received, Dark Souls Two was the most well received entry in the entire franchise. Wow. Yeah, imagine that. It's oh, that made my day. Yeah. So. Okay, uh, where I found it actually is this uh, Gamepedia.com. They have an entry for Souls-like video games, and there, um, yeah, the first one listed is Monster Hunter series. Okay, yeah. Yep, there it is. Wow. Oh, Momodora. Oh, and uh, Witcher 3, apparently. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, no, that one is example of games which borrow Souls-like elements, so... No, Witcher has uh, the health bar, and then the, uh, I want to say there's a there's a bar for your, your uh, sigils. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of a stamina bar, I guess. Um, but regardless, there's a ton of these games, and hopefully there's going to be many, many more in the future. Um, mm-hmm. Dark Souls, I feel like, kind of set a standard, or a genre-specific standard, 
that kind of redefined the gaming space we find ourselves in, much like GTA did for open world adventure games or God of War did for kind of uh, Western style character action games. Um, so until next time then, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. And um, if you have any uh, questions, concerns, or like prompts you'd like us to respond to, uh, things you'd like us to discuss in later episodes, um, please feel free to swing by our, our Twitch pages, uh, through which you can find links to Discord, our Discords quite easily, and get in touch with us. We would love to have you. I am joined, as always, by Seth the Overwitch, who goes by that very handle on Twitch. Yes, exactly. Hello, and goodbye. <laughs> all of this info will be uh, in the description, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's always in the description. And also, just to mention our next episode, since we kind of know up in advance mm -hmm. what we're going to be talking about, our next episode is going to be a recap of 2020. It's been a hell of a year, and let's see how it's affected gaming industry. Yeah, no, we're going to be recapping major releases across console, PC, and uh, the Switch, specifically, which occupies its own weird little liminal space. Yeah. Switch is not a console, it's a way of life. I can't wait to see what, what came out this year because I feel like 2020 has gone on for so damn long that, like, titles that were actually actually released in 2016 feel like they came out this year. Yeah, I agree. It's been 87 years! Right, just to, to wrap this up, then you can find Seth over on twitch.tv slash SethTheOverwitch, and uh, you can join me sporadically at twitch.tv slash TheOverAnalyst. We would both love to have you, and uh, we would love for you guys to join join these discussions, like with your, your thoughts or your prompts, so be sure to drop into our discords and let us know if there's anything you would like to see or hear us talk about. Um. Until next time, I believe we shall just leave it here. Thank you all so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen, and have a wonderful rest of your week. Goodbye.